Father in heaven, we do want to thank you today. It's a privilege to be here to talk about the importance of persuasive appeals for decision. We ask that your Holy Spirit would come and guide this class. We pray that every word would uplift Jesus. And we ask, Lord, that you would help our hearts to be into this message that whether we live at home, share with a work associate, or whether we share in a classroom setting or behind the pulpit, that we will be appealing to others on behalf of Jesus. We pray, pray in his name. Amen. When to make appeals and where appeals appeal. We're going to start with an appeal found in the Review and Herald, page, not page, from the magazine. Uh, it was from November 2 of 1886. Uh, and think of this as an appeal. And when you read your Bibles, think of how the Lord is speaking to your heart. We can probably learn more about appeals other than in prayer itself and responding to God's appeals. We can learn more from the scripture and from the spirit of prophecy than anywhere else. One reason I include what others have said from non-Adventist sources is uh, I do want to appeal to others who may in some way be suspicious of the Bible or spirit of prophecy. But I want to guarantee to you that I am not. That I love the Bible, I love the spirit of prophecy, and I feel that that is where the best sources are to learn how to make appeals. And the Holy Spirit will bless you and guide you in that. And I just pray that uh, maybe along the way, other people will be blessed as well. So this is it. Uh, the Savior speaks to his people. Be zealous and repent. It is not ministers whom you have slighted. It is not the warnings of men that you have rejected. It is not my delegated prophets that you have refused to hear, but your Redeemer, your only hope. If ye are destroyed, it is yourselves alone that are responsible. Ye will not come to me that ye might have life. Now what is interesting about this appeal written from the pen of Ellen White is it is basically a quotation from Jesus himself. Be zealous therefore and repent. It's not the ministers, it's not the prophets, it's not the holy men that you've rejected, but it is, your, it is re, your Redeemer, your only hope. And then the Lord appeals through the spirit of prophecy that if you are destroyed, you have only yourself to blame. You are responsible yourself because you would not come to me that you might have life. So that is an appeal. And you have the opportunity of a redeemer, friend, or to be destroyed. And then she goes on to say, says the true witness. And these are real, this is really the appeal of Jesus. 
This is an appeal of Jesus Christ. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Every warning, reproof, and entreaty in the word of God or through his delegated messengers is a knock at the door of the heart. It is the voice of Jesus asking for entrance. With every knock unheeded, your determination to open becomes weaker and weaker. So here's an appeal not to put off our salvation, but to go to the door and answer it. Of course, this is a reference back to Revelation chapter 3, where Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will sup with him, will dine with him, and he with me. And it goes on beyond that to say in verse 21, He who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, even as also I overcame. And that means we will overcome like Jesus overcame. We can overcome in the same way that Jesus overcame. The power that allowed for Christ to overcome every temptation of his life can be such in your life and mine that we will overcome every temptation in our life. He who overcomes, I will grant to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Laodicea receives the sternest rebuke, really, of any of the seven churches. To be lukewarm is to be in such a desperate condition before God that you do not even know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. And I like to say when I preach on this subject, I want to commend each and every one of you, and I hope I never have to forego that for any reason, but I want to commend each of you today. No one is sitting here naked. <laughs> you all came dressed. Laodicea doesn't realize that they are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Now we're talking naked spiritually. But Jesus uses some very, very straightforward language when he says that to share with us the, the desperation that it is to be a lukewarm Laodicean. Laodiceans don't have to be warm, but when you think of Laodicea, you always think of someone who is lukewarm because the, uh, the residents there, they had lukewarm water, they were, they were rich, they were increased with goods, they had all the outward blessings from God. Uh, in this same article, uh, Ellen White says that the Lord has given us blessings in order to test us. Sometimes we get a blessing, and then our minds are turned immediately to the world. God allows us to be tested not only from things that may be illness or may be, we know what I'm talking about, bad news, but God allows us to be tested by 
the good things that we possess as well. How will we use those? Will be to his name's honor and glory. And the Lord is a very generous God. About an hour ago, I took a cart ride and I stopped and I was ready to get off and my friend said, well, let me tell you a story if you have a minute. I said, sure. He said, when I lost my leg, he said it was because of that that my life was saved. He said, if I would not have lost my leg, I would have died because of the scans they did of his body. They discovered uh, a cancer that surely would have cost him his life. So he is praising God. I don't know if I've ever met anyone more happy to lose a leg in my life. And then, beyond that, he had another testimony. He said, we gave an offering to a missionary, and I take it it was a pretty substantial offering. And then, within a short time thereafter, God more than made up to them that offering plus $200 and, and more. And so when you open your heart to God and you accept the pleadings of the Holy Spirit, God gives you more, much more than we'd ever, ever give to him. So we have these appeals. And... We'll, we'll go on to uh, the first part of the lesson here. It talks about a central route and a peripheral route. Basically, when a person decides from the central route, their decision sticks and they're more apt to stay with what they decided to do. If they have to go by means of a peripheral route to make a decision, they're not as apt to stay with it long term. It doesn't mean they can't. But accepting the first promptings, I, I put it like this, spiritually speaking. This was an article out of Psychology Today. But spiritually speaking, the sooner we accept the central route in the pull of the Holy Spirit, rather than going by means of peripheral routes or secondary routes, could it be that the sooner we make that decision and answer the most direct pleading of the Holy Spirit, the better for us long term? I don't have all that studied out. It's just something to think about. And so I included it in here. Um, I just really think that it's advantageous on the way to class. I actually did prepare for this more than in the last hour. I don't want to give the wrong impression. But on the, on the way to class, I said to someone, I said, you graduated three years before me. He said, no. He says, I, uh, I didn't make it through that year. He said, I was told to do thus and so, thus and so by the principal. 
And he said, I didn't do it. I went out and I went hunting. Never went back to school. He said, it was the worst decision of my life. Now, that direct route could have given him a diploma at the end of that year. He said, now I don't have a graduating class. And so he's lived with that for a number of years. But I will say this, if you want to say, compare central route, direct route, answering the pleadings of the Holy Spirit first, you see the psychologists in the world, <coughs> they tend to think if you're a peripheral route person, it may not stick. I don't want to limit the power of the Holy Spirit to help someone stay with it. Amen? I'm not suggesting that. But I'm just saying, answer directly as soon as you are called, and there's more and more direct line benefits all along the way. Amen? And if you're a peripheral person or if you've put off on something, the Lord can still bless you. You can still stay with it. Uh, we're not talking just about secular psychology, praise God, but it's just sort of interesting. Don't take a chance about tomorrow. Today is the day of salvation. If anyone hears his voice, let him answer today. Jesus is knocking today. Now there's an example in the Song of Solomon, chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, about the bride of the king. And you will find in the scriptures the only other direct reference to someone knocking at the door and not having that door open to them. You'll find that first in your Bible, not in Revelation chapter 3, but in Song of Solomon chapter 5 and verses 1 and 2. And it's a very, very, uh, it's an emotional story. It, it, it tugs at your heart to read it. <clears throat> you have a groom and his bride who have just entered into marriage. In verse 1, the whole book of Solomon's, the Song of Songs, has led up to verse 1 of chapter 5. After that point, everything else in the book is about the husband and the wife. You have a chiastic structure in Song of Solomon. In the very next verse, this grips you, it grips me. Song of Solomon, chapter 5, verse 2, I was asleep, says the bride, but my heart was awake. A voice, my beloved was knocking. Open to me, my sister, my darling, my dove, my perfect one. These are the words of her lover, of her husband. For my head is drenched with dew, my locks with the damp of the night. So, these are the words of Revelation chapter 3. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice, open for me. My 
dove, my perfect one. It's amazing to me how God sees how God sees us, how he wills to see us, how he chooses to see us. Yes, sometimes even in our lukewarm condition. The depths of his love is very much expressed here. And you get the picture of someone who is drenched by the dew, his locks by the damp of the night, And what is the reaction of his bride? Verse 3, I've taken off my dress. I'm in here in the New uh, American Standard. How can I put it on again? I have washed my feet. How can I dirty them again? My beloved extended his hand through the opening. And on the ancient doors, there was an opening there by which you could unlock that door. But he's extending his hand not to unlock the door. He will not go in without an invitation He does not unlock it. And she says, my feelings were aroused for him. She finally arises. I arose to open to my beloved, and my hands dripped with myrrh, and my fingers with liquid myrrh on the handles of the bolt. He had left that myrrh there. The groom had left it. He had left his fragrance at the door, at the opening to the door. He had done everything to allure her to that door. He had knocked. He had called out by name. He had called her beautiful, beautiful, loving, and called her in beautiful and loving entreaties. And he had left his fragrance on the opening to that door. He had done everything he could to encourage her to make that decision and to answer his appeal. She says in verse 6, I opened to my beloved, but my beloved had turned away and had gone. How many times have you or I left Jesus at the door? We have made our excuses, and are they not slight and of a ridiculous nature that we would not immediately go to the door. I'm wearing my nightgown now. I'm in my pajamas. My feet are bare. I don't want to get them dirty. For the like of you? What? What have we done to our Savior? Meanwhile, he stands, and he stands for a long time until his locks are drenched with the dew of the night. I feel bad for what she has to go through next. But in her trouble of finding him, she does never, ever again go back. She has to find Christ via the peripheral route, But when she finds him, she never lets go of him again. And we're talking about his bride. They've just gotten married. There's no more closer relationship you'll ever have than than your relationship with Jesus. It it began to sink home with me uh, a few years ago when my father died. 
And then most of my uncles and aunts have died. Of course, I lost my mother when I was 11. But there are very few people today that call me Danny. Well, what does that have to do with anything? People that knew me as Danny knew me when I was a little boy. I was Danny to them. Everybody on my mother's side of the family, I was Danny. I have two uncles and two aunts that are yet alive. And when I see them, I'm Danny. And when they call me by that name, it feels good. There was one person in my life that consistently called me Daniel. And it could well be if my mother had lived beyond the normal years, I'd be called Daniel to this day. But she was the one that called me Daniel all the time. I guess that sort of her, was her exclusive right. My dad liked Dan, and most people call me Dan to this day. I, just sort of, I grew up with that. After, after my mother died, I, I was Dan. But I thought, very few people know me from when I was young. But there is someone who has known me before I was ever born. And that is my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He has a new name written up in glory. You would ask that question. I will tell you what he called me. When my mom was uh, working in the bathroom one day when I was eight, I was outside in the driveway and I was learning how to get on a high, a very large bicycle without using the milk box. That sort of dates me. Some of you remember milk boxes. The seal test milk or whatever would be delivered into the milk box, the side of the back door, with glass bottles and things like that. And I remember the horse-drawn carriages. The milkman used to come up and down Goodrich, Goodrich Street in Lansing, Michigan. Anyway, without using a curb or a milk box, I was learning to get on my bicycle without such you know, annoyances, I guess. And Dwight was with me. And I heard a voice, a distinctive voice. It sounded like the voice of many waters. It sounded like a quartet of men's voices. It was the most beautiful voice I've ever heard in all my life. My friend Dwight, who was just a step or two from me, he did not hear it. The voice said, Daniel, go into the house. Your mother needs you. I immediately said to Dwight, Dwight, let's go in and get some Oreos and milk. And we went in. I opened the refrigerator to get the Oreos and milk out, and I heard the bathtub water running. I rushed into the bathroom where my mother was lying on the floor. She had had a paralyzing stroke. It affected her entire left side of her body. She couldn't move. And we were... We were in a panic, two eight-year-old boys. So we couldn't get that water to turn off. And so he ran across the street, got his mom. Jackie came over. She turned off the water. She called the ambulance. And from that day on, my mother was never the same again. I was eight when that happened. And it took her three years to very gradually learn how to walk, how to talk, um, how to function again. She went from high heels to clodhopper shoes. 
And she went from being a young and beautiful woman to an older woman, but she was still my mom. And she had heart trouble beyond that, and so at age 11, went into uh, University of Michigan Hospital, and I think I told you the story, didn't I? Maybe I didn't. That's to the end of this message today. But the one time I heard the voice of Jesus in my life, audibly, he called me Daniel. And I hope and pray to have that new name and glory someday. But that helped save my mother to me for another three years. Central route. I accepted the call to gospel ministry when I was 13. The central route. I'd still prefer the central route than a peripheral route. But even though modern psychology says the peripheral route may not be as good, I, I would say this spiritually speaking, God can use the peripheral route. We've all given him a peripheral route to some extent, and so have I. And uh, I have regrets about that. I wish I was always a central route person. The first call, the biblical call, the straight way, you know? But I've, I've made the Lord, you know, sometimes he's left from knocking, and I have to go find him. Um, Mary and Joseph, they were with him in, in Jerusalem. They took off. And they thought, they just presumed Jesus was with them. And after three days of searching desperately, here they are. Our son is the son of God. Well, they couldn't just go out there and say that to unbelieving people, but can you imagine? We cannot even imagine the desperation. We have lost the son of God, the treasure of heaven, and they're going all through that town. And finally, they go to the very place they should have looked first, to the temple. And he says, Mother and Father, did you not know that I must be about my father's business? Okay. Well, I've sort, you, you got the idea. It's in your notes. People are motivated to hold correct attitudes. Now, this is from a secular psychologist. But it's interesting to me. It's hopeful to me that he has determined from his research that people want to do what's right. There's something in the, the Holy Spirit is speaking to hearts. He's speaking to every heart. If someone comes to your church, someone comes to the Jesus on Prophecy meetings, you can know they're there because the Holy Spirit's speaking to their hearts. And even secular psychology would admit people are motivated to hold correct attitudes. Where do we get that? Some, the Holy Spirit, somewhere, they, somehow. How can you explain it other than it being the Holy Spirit? They want to do what's right. They want to have a correct attitude. So we have that to start with. Although people want to hold correct attitudes, the amount of elaboration people are willing or able to do to evaluate a message can vary. Variables can affect the amount and the direction of attitude change. There's various circumstances so forth. I'll let you read it for yourself. Affecting motivation, number four, and or ability to process a message can either enhance or reduce argument scrutiny. And about here I'm going to say again, if you're in a position to give a sermon, make sure that if there's a non-Adventist there 
and you know that they are in a valley of decision, you need to be visiting them, confronting them in a very loving way. And if you know someone is there and the Lord is speaking to their heart, keep visiting them. Keep befriending them. Keep inviting them over. Uh, visit them in the congregation. Visit them in their home. And you don't know how big of a difference that will make in their life. And because they're going to be going through things like, oh, you're going to those Adventist meetings? And, and people, many people have no idea what we really believe. They are, some, many people yet even to this day may never even have heard about Seventh-day Adventists. They don't know. They, they've never heard the name. We were talking to a Jew on the phone two or three days ago, a very nice lady. But she, when we told her we were Seventh-day Adventists, she totally, you know, didn't get it. She never heard of a people like this. And she's Jewish. As motivation and our ability to process arguments is decreased, peripheral clues become more important to persuasion. So the peripheral clues, they might be going through circumstances unique to them, a trial, a suffering. God is going to enable you to know things like that. The Holy Spirit will speak to your heart and you'll be able to respond to some of these peripheral clues the Lord is now using. Maybe they haven't followed the direct line of the message that you've given behind the pulpit or in the Bible study but pray that you'll understand the peripheral clues. Variables affecting the message processing in a relatively biased manner can produce either a positive or negative bias toward the persuasion attempt. And the devil is always trying to throw a ratchet wrench into the very best of what you've gotten. That's why personal friendship and visitation is so important. Attitude changes from the central route will be more persistent, he says, more likely to impact behavior and will be more resistant to later change. And spiritually speaking, again, the sooner a person accepts the truth, the better. Now, it doesn't mean necessarily that you baptize them right away, but you are on that case. I have a dear friend I asked him at the beginning of the week, before our first class, please pray for me. I have been under conviction to ask him again to please pray for this class. The Holy Spirit knows I've been praying for him, but I never asked him again. Just as the class was beginning, I was texting him at 3.30 because he had just texted me and said he's praying. May the Lord bless you. May the Holy Spirit bring conviction. And my friend is not a Seventh-day Adventist, but he loves the Lord. So pray that the Lord will speak to his heart. I, I was just amazed. And then my other Bible, one of my other Bible studies, I usually visit on Thursday night. I, I told him I, I wouldn't be able to be there tonight, but he had forgotten that. So he texted me five minutes ago. 
And, and he said, I don't know if you're able to be here tonight or not, but my son and I have to do something. So he was, he, he was giving me a heads up so that I wouldn't go out of my way. So the Holy Spirit was speaking to his heart. And you know what that did for me? I'm thinking, Lord, you brought me under conviction to, to text my friend again. Please keep on praying for me because I'm under conviction. He loves prayer. And if I'm asking him to pray for me, what do you think that's going to do to his heart? So the Holy Spirit, in the, in the goodness of God, even though I had not responded to the central route conviction, ask him to pray for you again. The Holy Spirit so convicted him, he appealed to me at 3.30 and said, I'm praying for you. Wow, what a God. Amen? Amen. We're in league and harmony with the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Lord. Now, in the next section, four words when giving a public invitation that enhance. Now, I put that down. That enhance the central route. We're talking the more direct route. We, we'd prefer that, but praise God for peripheral routes too. Amen? Now, the central route, and this is from a former president of the Southern Baptist Convention. But my friends... We as Seventh-day Adventists need to be making more appeals. We have God's truth. This is a rebuke to me. We have, I believe, Bible truth. We're not better people than our Baptist friends. We're not better people than our Catholic friends. But I believe we are God's people. I believe, nonetheless, we are God's people. I believe this is God's truth. I, there's no better truth than what we've got. Stay with the ship. That's what uh, Elder Bradshaw said last night, I think. Stay with the ship. And didn't he say, was it him last night or was it David this morning? He said, the, the ark was a messy business. Probably anything from the smells to all those animals. Was it last night or was it David? I thought David said it this morning on second thought, but anyway, well, I anyway, <laughs> I heard it. Maybe they both said it. I don't know. I was there for one. I wasn't there for the other, but I listened to one on the radio. <laughs> the, the ark was a messy business. They're confined. It was a nice, massive boat, but they're confined in this one place with all these animals, and it's a mess in there. And it, maybe the stench sometimes is bad. Think of the honey wagon that comes around town. I don't know. But it was the best place on earth to be, amen? And the church is messy business sometimes. But it's the best place. You don't want to jump overboard. Some people think it's, okay, I'm going to jump overboard. But it's at the cost of their souls. Think of how many people left this church or tried to improve on this message. And it's been to the loss of their souls. Every time. And yet they do it and they think nothing of it because they have wandered away from the counsel of the Lord. So here he is. He says, when I prepare the message from the introduction to the conclusion. So where? I'd say when. It's always time for a good appeal. And you can put that from the introduction to the conclusion. But you do want to have a message. We'll get to that. I am keeping in mind that I will soon issue a public call for people to respond to God. 
Through the message and even sometimes during the welcome, I talk about the public invitation. By informing people of the call that I'm about to issue at the conclusion of my message, it sets forth the importance of an urgency. Preaching issues a call for decision. To this man, Pastor Floyd, preaching means I'm calling people to a decision. I don't know if I've always thought that. It's been a little more peripheral at times. But for him, if he's going to preach, it means he's going to call for a decision. Remember what I've been saying all week? We ought to be getting decisions every week in our churches. Clarity. It's imperative the preacher always is clear about what he's asking people to do in their response to God. They've heard the voice of God through that message, and now God is asking for the response. He said, however, most pastors do not take the time to prepare the public invitation. This results in ineffectiveness and lack of clarity. If you prepare a good message and people are now convicted and you do not ask for a response, there's a disconnect in their minds. They think that was so good that appealed to my heart. I was ready or I would have made a decision. But he called for none. So it undercuts everything else you've said. They're expecting that you will call them to some kind of a response to the voice of God. And you've failed to do that. So maybe that message that I thought carried so much weight is not so important after all. He didn't even ask me to say yes or no. It'd be like someone come. I remember back in the day, the fuller brush man would come to our door. There's one good thing about being old. You remember stuff that you can still use. And you know, he would, he would be there and he always asked my, my mom, to buy fuller brush. You would never go into the house as a literature evangelist. I've done some of that, have you? And give a canvas, and then before you get to the close or the appeal, just say, it's been nice knowing you, and walk out the door. You'd never do that. But we do it on sermons all the time. And we think the sermon was so good. It's failed. I hate to say that. But we have failed in our responsibility. But praise God, we have the Holy Spirit who takes that sermon and still speaks to people's hearts. And if anyone makes a decision after a sermon like that, we can just thank the Lord. Amen. And people do. People do. God uses our weak efforts. But let's take the central route in our presentation. Consistency in the way you extend the invitation is critical for response. I'm usually very consistent in offering four different calls. I mean, he's... he's uh, some of these churches that are large, this... I'm not going to say this is my personal opinion. Not supposed to, I told you not to say that. But I believe. I'm under conviction. It's easy to criticize them because they have these large churches. 
but I believe some of them have used better persuasive techniques than we have. They've been more direct in making appeals than we have. We should be foremost in uplifting Christ. We should be foremost in giving appeals to accept Christ. We should be foremost in giving appeals to accept the beautiful truths we have. The Sabbath, you know, the second coming, the sanctuary, the state of the dead, the true church, the spirit of prophecy, baptism. We have the message. We do. We have more reasons to give persuasive appeals than they've got. We know where Jesus is today. I love when David brought out, David Shin brought out today that we have the message of where Jesus is right now. I've been telling that to people for years. Most people don't, they don't have an idea of what Jesus is doing now in heaven. They don't. He's just up there in heaven. They don't have any concept of him being our high priest. Or if they have heard that, they don't know what that means because they have subtracted the sanctuary message right out of their doctrinal list. We've got the sanctuary. We've got more good reasons to make appeals than they ever did. And yet I marvel at how concerned this brother is to give an appeal. Every sermon he preaches. Why don't I have that kind of conviction? Why don't we? And I don't want to be, I, I don't want to be too, uh, I don't want to come across as negative on this church. When my pastor gets up and when I hear an Adventist minister, and I'm more on the other side of the pew now than I used to be, I'm out in the congregation, I'm retired, and I don't ever want to be bitter toward the man or the woman that, that's delivering the gospel message that day. I want to lift them up in prayer. I believe they are God's instrument, that they are anointed. I pray for the anointing of the Holy Spirit on their life. I want to stand in this church and uplift its leaders. Amen? Amen. The church call, he gives a call inviting people to be part of his church every week. There are people in some of our churches that are consistently attending church and they're not receiving a call. I'll pick on myself. There was a young man attending my church in Lansing years ago. Pastored there a number of years. Met Austin at that time. And he was an every weeker. After two years, I finally found out and I should have known earlier, like I said, I'm going to pick on myself. It's easy to pick on others. I'll, I'll tell you one of my faults. <laughs> I found out, though he was coming every week, he was not a member of my church. How that escaped my notice, I think the Lord brought me, uh, after about a year and a half, to go over that, that membership name by name by name, whether they were attending or not. And I found his name. That must have been how. Well, I didn't find his name. But I knew his name. He was there every week. He's not a member. I went after him then. And he was soon baptized. <sighs> um, so, so we have to know who the people are that are in our congregation. We have to know if they're a member or not. There was a young man who was attending meetings we had 
I presumed he was the head deacon of the church. He was there first. He was gone last. He would unlock. He would lock up. He did everything around there. Very, very dedicated. I saw, it so happened I was the interim pastor as well as the conference evangelist for this series of meetings. Gary was always there. After about five weeks, I realized he'd never been baptized. As soon as I realized the head deacon was not a deacon, in fact, he was not even a member of the church, I started visiting him every single week, sometimes more. One day, and I use this as an appeal sometimes for baptism, one day I went to his house with a pastor. And even though we had visited him at least five, if not six times by then, we sensed that we were not getting anywhere. Do you, have you ever felt that way? Yeah, join the crowd, right? And we sat in the car and we prayed before we went to the door. We had an appointment. We were there on time. That's very important. And if you can't be a place on time, text them, call them, even if it's five minutes late because it will build your credibility. But be there on time if you possibly can. Anyway, so we sat there and we prayed. And I said to Ryan, Ryan Council, maybe some of you know him. I said, you know what, Ryan, I don't know what to do. And he, he said back to me, don't know what to do. We, we don't. We don't know. So we gave it up to God, knocked on the door, no answer. He had set us up. Have you ever been set up by someone? He knows you're coming. He's told me this. His wife was out in the yard. We said, Don, where's Gary? Oh, she said, he's down the hill. He was working on his boat dock. And uh, we had an appointment. So what's a wife to say? She knew. She, she loved her husband. She just she didn't down him or anything. He, he's down in the doctor. She, she knew what he had done. She had, he had set us up. He didn't intend to see us. So we went down the hill, about 100 steps down to the dock. No exaggeration. He was in the water. And we chit-chatted. And the Spirit of the Lord was saying, ask Gary about baptism. And I, I kept thinking, he didn't even want to see us. So we're just, you know, put in the dock this time every, every year. And, you know, we're just talking about the dock and talking about Diamond Lake and talking about boats and all this peripheral, peripheral route stuff. And finally, I couldn't take it any longer. And I said, Gary, I said, I would imagine that, well, first of all, I said, have you ever had a baptism service here at Diamond Lake? And he said, here? I said, yeah, right here. It's such a beautiful place. He said, no. And then I said, Gary, I, I would imagine that you've oftentimes thought that whenever you do get baptized, you'd like to get baptized right here at this very place at Diamond Lake. And he said, I want to get baptized right now. 
Now let's set the scene again. He studied the Adventist message for not one, but 13 years. He goes to church every week. He's been acting like the deacon of that church for many years, but he's not a member. And Ryan, if you know Ryan Council, he's taken his suit coat off. Really, I mean, I believe that he would have jumped right into the lake right then. I said, hey, hold on. I said, your wife is up the hill. I said, your, your in-laws live one-tenth of a mile down the street. Maybe Pastor Williams would want to be here. Don Williams, you may have heard his name. I said, why don't you give us even just one hour to, you talk to your wife, talk to your in-laws, talk to Dave and Edie, Maybe we'll call the pastor, see if he can, can come. And, and then we'll have the baptism. Uh, pastor Williams was an elder in that church. He'd already retired. So he said, okay. We were back in one hour, and we had a Thursday night baptism as the sun was setting at Diamond Lake. Amen. It so happens that uh, his wife's uncle is our next door neighbor at camp meeting. I spoke to Gary last Sabbath here at Cedar Lake camp meeting. I tell him every year, I'm still telling his story. It was nine years ago. It was one of the most unusual occurrences, you know. Thursday night, I want to get baptized right now. And he told us later, he was down in that lake working on the boat dock Half baptized, you know, he was in halfway. But halfway isn't enough. We need to be immersed, amen? amen. Maybe the Lord's speaking to your heart. We need to be immersed. And after baptism, we need to be immersed in the Holy Spirit. We need to have the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. We need to be drenched every day, amen? And so after, afterward, he said, yes, I was putting off. In fact, I'd gone down to the dock knowing that you'd knock on the door and I wasn't there. He was trying to avoid us, but he couldn't avoid the Holy Spirit anymore. How many of you would like to be baptized? Amen? Those, those personal stories make a difference. Well, he calls people to a decision even if they've made a commitment. This pastor calls them to ministry for the church. It might be, we need a deacon in this place. We need someone who will care for this church. I'm going to call someone, some man here today. We need more ministry leaders in our church. Will you accept that call if you will? Come forward, sign your card, whatever it might be. Raise your hand, stand. See me afterward. At the door, I'll be there. We need to be making appeals. People would love to answer appeals. Amen? They love to be needed. Some people, they're just, they don't think they're needed. We need them in ministry. And uh, always give people an opportunity to respond to God. Build a culture in your church where responding to God is normal. It should be. I believe that people would come to church for the sake of hearing a good call. Why do you think they came to, to hear Billy Graham? 
It was that call. There's something about that call. Just as I am without one plea. But that thy blood was shed for me. And so, he said, I preach as a dying man to dying men. Richard Baxter, the English Puritan, used to say that. Oh, well, it's a good thing I gave you some kind of appeal. Our, our time is nearly up. I, I've covered some of this other stuff about invitations without sermons. You need a good sermon in there too. Uh, sometimes there's sermons without invitations, and that leads to a sermon that is sort of lifeless uh, because if they, if they know they're not going to give some kind of an appeal during, at, at the end of their sermon, a lot of sermons therefore become sort of lifeless and there's not a passion to them because the presenter in that case knows that there's no good ending. So, I mean, after all, it decreases the effectiveness of the sermon all, all the way along. So a sermon needs to be an invitation. In various points throughout the sermon, make the sermon an invitation. I'll let you get those afterward, brother, because I, I, I noticed that. So we want a frontal assault to the human heart. We want a central route to the human heart. And praise God, the Holy Spirit is very good at, at, at opening up peripheral routes too. Our time is nearly up. Uh, I had an appeal today, I believe, on... Death and resurrection. Uh, how about if I give that tomorrow? Well, it's past time. Let's pray. Dear Lord in heaven, we don't know all the answers, but we know that your Holy Spirit does. And we really don't know how to reach the hearts, but we want to be more effective in our ministry for you. We come humbly now asking you that you would prepare our hearts through the power of the Holy Spirit. Speak to the ones that we love. Speak to the interests that we have. Help us to be a seed for others so that they will come to know Jesus and come to know the beautiful message, this beautiful remnant truth of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And may we be faithful all the way until the end. And many souls by our side. When Jesus comes, we pray in his name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.